This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we begin with one man's unusual journey. Gerardo Lopez was a gang member in Los Angeles, became an inmate in Colorado, and is now a mentor to kids. His story is the subject of the new film, Clever. When you were asked that famous question in, in, in kindergarten, what do you want to be when you grow up? None of these kids said, I want to be a gangbanger at that age, you know? Unfortunately, because of where they live and because of the bad choices that they make, and next thing you know, they see in order for me to survive in that, I have to join a gang. And not only do they join a gang, but a mask comes with it. Now their name is not Little Jose or Little Johnny. Now their name is Killer, you know, or Sniper. And now they feel that they have to go ahead and prove themselves to live up to that name. And I've seen people that have put that mask on at the age of 13, and they're my age, and they still haven't learned how to take that mask off. This film premieres this weekend at Cine Latino. That's a Latino film festival in Denver. Filmmaker Alan Dominguez is here to share this story, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So Gerardo Lopez joined a Salvadoran gang called MS-13 when he was a kid in Los Angeles. Right. And he talks a lot about masks in the film, as you heard there. What does he mean by masks that people wear? He, he's uh, a lot of what he talks about is is how kids get involved with gangs in the first place, and he really believes that they're looking for something else than what they see around them. Because a lot of the kids that are prone to joining gangs, you know, come from tough backgrounds. They come from poverty. They come from uh, single parent households, and they're they're looking for something else to define them. And and you know, when you're thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, everybody's looking for something to define them. And he, by by putting that gangster mask on that he talks about. They're able to protect themselves from being who they might really be. And they're, they're certainly able to protect themselves in a very physical way from a very tough environment. Mm. And so that, that, that quest for an identity, that quest for who am I really, is really at that, at that, uh, that, that, that flashpoint of when we decide to what, we're gonna, what social group we're going to be but uh, it's, part of. But it's not just about identity. It's about safety. It's about protection, too, you're e- saying. Exactly. And I think that's, that kind of gets lost in the mix. I think that's, that's uh, one thing that people don't realize is that, that in his case especially, it uh, really was about protecting himself. He was, uh, he's, he's grown up to be quite an imposing physically guy, physical guy, physically imposing guy. But uh, when he was younger, he was, he was smaller and got picked on. The title of this film, Clever, refers to the gang name that Lopez picked for himself. And uh, Lopez talks about the gang MS-13, which has a really interesting history. You say in the film that the gang started when Salvadorans started leaving El Salvador because of a U.S.-backed war. And why did they form a gang in Los Angeles? MS was actually the the reason that I, that I, that, that was the reason behind making the film. Um, So the, the, uh, the U.S.-backed war in El Salvador caused, I, I forget how many thousands of refugees it was, but they happened to all settle in Los Angeles and specifically Koreatown, a previously Korean part of town. And in order to protect themselves against uh, larger gangs who had been there for a generation or two or three. Some most, of the Mexican gangs. Exactly, mostly Mexican gangs. Um, they had to form a gang that was uh, their own. And, uh, you know, Salvadoran Spanish, we don't think of it like this, but Salvadoran Spanish is different from Mexican Spanish. They, they speak differently. They walk differently. They have a different, uh, a different culture, a different, a different uh, everything about them is, 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 is distinct from being Mexican. Lopez ended up in juvenile detention when he was 17, was locked up for two years. He eventually left the gang and came to Colorado because he says he had a young kid and he wanted to get away. Talk about what he did when he first came to Colorado. When he first came to Colorado, he he was uh, he was the first his first priority was actually to get a, to get educated. 
So he enrolled at a two-year degree program. I forget exactly where, but uh, studied criminal justice of all things. Right. And, and then uh, was working. You know, I think he worked some some lower-paying jobs here and there. But then we started getting into working in halfway houses, getting into uh, juvenile facilities, working uh, part-time at first, and then those those jobs kind of grew until uh, until two thousand nine. Right. And he ends up getting arrested and uh, is put in jail in Colorado. How does he describe right. what happened to him? He describes it as uh, extraordinarily abrupt. Uh, he had no, I mean, he had no reason to think that he was on anybody's radar. Uh, he had moved here because he had a friend here living in Aurora and really to get away from the life. And when he was arrested by federal authorities, he was the most surprised person in the room. And how does he describe what occurred, why he was arrested? He he describes, uh, you know, being being a picked up and really kind of in the dark as to what he was, uh, as to why he was picked up. And it turns out that that uh, he was facing federal uh, drug conspiracy charges, and uh, he could not understand who the people were in his indictment. It was all very, very myster- mysterious. He was he was tangentially connected at best to the people who were uh, charged. And he thinks it's something of a conspiracy. <laughs> he does. He, explain that just briefly. Sure. He he believes that it, that uh, that one of the investigators had a, having a background in Los Angeles. And knowing him from there. Uh, and either knowing him from there or having friends who were still working in Los Angeles, know, certainly knowing who Gerardo was, uh, may have had something to do with that with that case that ended up going nowhere. Right. The charges were dismissed and he's released. Correct. Yeah. And he starts an anti-gang group in Colorado called Homies Unidos Correct. Denver. Homies United. Correct. Correct. And you have several clips of him talking to kids. Uh, here's one about controlling anger. Okay. Nobody could get you angry unless you let them get you angry. That's what we have to work on. We can't stoop down to that level. We can only go down there if we go down there. If we stay up here, we stay strong mentally. Guess what? There's not going to be no altercation. And he offers a bit more advice in the film. How do we raise the kid that's inside of us? Because right now, your little brother, your little sister... You see them kicking a the ball, doing whatever outside, and the monkey bars are where they're six or seven. But man, honestly, right now, you're their superheroes. You're their heroes. They're going to do whatever you do. If you do bad, they're going to say, you know what? I want to be accepted by my brother and my sister. I'm going to do bad too. But there's going to be a time. If you don't pay attention to these kids, there's going to be a time. They're going to grow up and be your age right now. And when you, can, and when you tell them something, they're not going to respect you. Alan Dominguez, when you were filming this film, Clever, and you watched these scenes of him trying to impart what he has experienced and learned to young people who are vulnerable to gangs, did did you get the sense that he's getting through to them? That's really what separates him, I think, from, from some people that do this work and really from a lot of educators. I also work in education. And he has a natural charisma of presenting what he's talking about in a way that is very unusual. And it's 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 very easy for kids to connect with him. He he knows exactly when to be, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a the hard hand, and he knows exactly when to when to to really be quiet and listen. And I think that's really what sets separates him. I I think he he does get through to a lot of kids. And how would you describe the work that Homies Unidos does and the the types of of young people it reaches out to? You know, I think he he what's been going on lately is he's working with individual schools that he he has known previously. He's already built up a relationship and built uh, a reputation, and schools will bring him in, and they they I think in most cases they they really kind of let him uh, 
they, they have kids that are kind of on their watch list. You know, the, the, these are kids that are that uh, are exhibiting what could be gang behavior. That there could be a gang presence in a school. He, you know, it's very different from Los Angeles. You know, where where the gangs are very very established, and around here, there's 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 not. There, it's it just looks and feels a little bit differently. Hmm. But which is what what so is powerful to me is that he can't come in before a lot of gangs really get in their their uh, you know really claim their territory and really mitigate a lot of that. Towards the end of the film, Lopez goes back to the idea of the mask, and he talks about former gang members trying to remove their tattoos. Right. So just imagine waking up in the morning. You still see these tattoos. Kind of somewhat the same as you will wake up in the morning and you still have your football or your cheerleader get up from high school and you don't want it no more, right? It doesn't fit for you anymore. And this kid that he was removing his tattoos on his face, before that he, um, he got acid from a battery and he got a needle and he started picking at his chin. But this is how much he hated himself. Even if it's pain, even if it's jail, it's what they're used to. And they feel that if they take that mask off again, um, they don't want to be that lost kid again. What do you think he's saying there? Because it's interesting that, to a certain extent, when you remove the mask, yes, there's liberation, but there's also, like, real vulnerability, you know? Right. And I, I think, honestly, um, that's the vulnerability is really the, the growing up. And, uh, and I think we all do that when, as you, as you, as we all age, we are more vulnerable. And especially when you're at those tender ages in, you know, the adults in your life are so, so important. And what he believes is, you know, a lot of these, a lot of kids that end up in gangs don't, don't have that adult presence, don't have that, that redirect presence in their lives. And so when they shed the gang association, it's as if they're regressing a bit. Exactly. And they have to grow up in a, in a kind of a new context. Exactly. It's spooky. The way, the way he really refers to it is it's, it's, it's really overcoming an addiction. You know, young people or adults for that matter are addicted to a lifestyle. And you, you cannot come out of that addiction without replacing, you know, all with repl- replacing, uh, you, know, you have to have another outlet for all of that energy. I think one of the most powerful scenes in this film, uh, Ellen Dominguez, clever, is when your your main character, the focus of the documentary, mm-hmm. Gerardo Lopez, gets his tattoos removed. Sure. And he's sitting in a chair, and it's it's really a painful procedure. You can tell from the look on his face. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, we had talked a lot about doing uh, shooting him actually getting his tattoos removed, and he, he mentioned that, that it's uh, – the hardest part is really manning up to do it because it is so, so painful. And he has a lot of tattoos uh, over, from over the years. And, you know, he just kind of focuses on the ones that are that are very visible. And he, he it's, it's uh, you can see it on his face. I mean, he's he's near tears. And uh, but it's really part of that catharsis that that he is, has been willing to go through. And, and really by doing it himself, he's really an example to the kids. Thanks for sharing his story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Alan Dominguez is the director of the short film Clever, which follows uh, Gerardo Lopez, the founder of Homies Unidos in Denver. The film premieres Sunday at Cine Latino. That's a Latino film festival at the C Film Center in Denver this weekend. And our program continues after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Methamphetamine is again reaching a crisis point in this country. Law enforcement officials say the highly addictive drug is flooding cities. 
In Denver, possession arrests have risen by more than 300 percent in just the last four years. Why? It's partly because meth is as potent as it's ever been. CPR's Ben Marcus has more. Eric Stevens tried meth for the first time when he was just 17 years old, and it gave him a feeling he'd never forget. I don't know, I just remember it. It instantly brought a smile to the face and tingling through the body. And uh, this might sound crazy, but a lot of tingling on top of the scalp. So just felt pretty good. So good that he spent the better part of the next 20 years trying to recreate that high. Meth was ruining his body and his relationships. He felt shame every time he injected it into his arm. Stevens knew he needed to stop. And then I found I couldn't quit, so then I started stealing from my mom, and I would start stealing and pawning stuff. All in order to feed what became a $100 a day habit. Methamphetamine is not a drug of the past. In fact, it's bigger than ever. Laura Duffy is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California. I have to say that methamphetamine is probably the most vexing and troubling drug-related border problem on my plate right now. Border seizures for meth jumped 36% last fiscal year. Duffy says Mexican cartels have solved production problems and are shipping in vast quantities of chemicals necessary to make meth from China. Now their super labs in Mexico are churning out a lot of product. And as a result, we're seeing very high-quality methamphetamine flood U.S. markets at uh, the highest quantity that we've ever seen, the highest quality we've ever seen, and unfortunately, the lowest prices that we've ever seen. 450 South Broadway, 450 South Broadway, Capitol. Lieutenant Ernie Martinez knows a thing or two about drugs. He's been a Denver police officer since the 80s. He's worked undercover and run drug task forces. He drives past a hotel near downtown Denver at Spear and I-25. It's a hot spot for meth arrests. Martinez says that's because of the freeway. Easy access, easy on and off, fitting in with uh, the majority of the population going to and from work, recreating, eating, that type of thing. Back when Lieutenant Martinez worked undercover, the goal was to get to a cook, the person making the meth. That was law enforcement's target in the 1980s and early 90s, when household products like cold medicine, paint thinner, and acetone fueled the rise of home meth labs. But those are rare these days. It all comes from Mexico now. So Martinez says the focus is on dismantling local distribution. Sometimes it's uh, a game of uh, whack-a-mole, you know. Uh, and, uh, that's Metaphorically, I think that's the way to to look at it sometimes and uh, you know it's, it's quite sad because the bottom line is that all these people are addicted they need help and there's not enough help for them and he says many are forced into addiction treatment only after being arrested in Denver, more than 2,500 people have been arrested for meth possession since 2011, helping to put a strain on the treatment system. Lindsay Harris is a therapist at Arapahoe House, the state's largest treatment facility. She says the number of patients seeking treatment for meth addiction has tripled since 2009, all while a heroin epidemic also rages. We've definitely added staff, but I don't think it's been that many. <laughs> And treatment for meth addiction is especially difficult. Harris says there's no prescription drug to help withdrawals like there is for heroin. And meth has a powerful lifestyle component. It keeps users up for days on end and gives them a feeling of superiority. But it makes it difficult. You know, there's so many people out there that um, haven't even come in our doors yet. And we have a really, we're really accessible now. Um, but there's still people out there that haven't come in yet or aren't ready yet. 
It took two decades for Eric Stevens to be ready to get treatment at Arapahoe House. It was having a child that convinced him he needed to get off meth. And after a year of sobriety, he's been able to reconnect with his son. It was awkward. He didn't, he didn't know me. But, um, you know, I see him about three or four days out of the week now. And uh, things are really good. They're better than I expected. So. A happy ending after 20 years of turmoil. But there's no end in sight for the cheap and potent meth that's inundating the U.S. and Colorado, meaning more addicts and more suffering. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's becoming a mecca for extreme sports medicine. It goes hand-in-hand with the outdoors culture here, combined with events like the X Games and the Leadville 100. A recent extreme sports medicine conference featured speakers from the worlds of surfing, hand gliding, hang gliding, pardon me, and base jumping, even mixed martial arts. Attendees came from around the world. Here's CPR's health reporter, John Daly. It's not the usual patient-doctor interaction. That's because Michelle Granger and her orthopedic surgeon, Omer Maydan, are talking about some hardcore mountain bike trails. Okay, you have to do Lenaway, too. The a Just one. suffer yeah, and yeah. climb the a no, no, I think I like Granger is a longtime endurance athlete. Dr. Maydan is an extreme sports athlete himself. Granger has competed in events worldwide, the kind that can require being on a bike for 36 hours or training 6,000 miles in a summer. But she's had multiple surgeries and many injuries. Neck, back, knee, hip, wrist, brain, kind of. Granger, who's 55, was hit by a truck while riding a few years ago. Later, she took a nasty spill on gravel in Boulder Canyon and broke her femur. A return to competition was iffy until she began going to Dr. Maydan. He found a way to treat her painful, injured hip. That allowed her to compete in an event she'd been longing to do, a 750-mile, 80-hour race in France. But I'm doing things that I had written off. I had slowly written off to where I didn't know I could ever do them again. Maydan, who's 43, is no ordinary doctor. His clinic is at the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center in Boulder. He's been a sponsored extreme athlete and stuntman. He's in videos on YouTube, base jumping, parachuting off skyscrapers, or in a Nissan car ad from an ultralight. Those experiences help him understand his patients. They think differently, they live differently, they would react differently to different types of recommendation, and you have to psychologically understand how to communicate with them. He says doctors treating these athletes need to understand the biomechanics of their sport, and they need to know the mentality of a patient willing to take the pain or risk of jumping off a cliff or kayaking over a 50-foot waterfall. He's not the person who say, you know what, okay, I'll give it up. You know, I've done it for 20 years. It's enough. It's not going to happen, right? So you have to know how to move with these people and help them to achieve their goals. A recent conference Maydan organized drew medical professionals from around the world. They discussed injuries in sports from skydiving to ultra running to rodeo. Dr. Julian Aguilar is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon from the Philippines. She's seeing more extreme sports-related injuries in her practice and came to Colorado to learn more. It's in the forefront of sports medicine. So a lot of people really come here, and many consider this as the mecca for sports medicine. Colorado became a hub for the discipline because its mountains and weather draw athletes and medical professionals in droves. Dr. Peter Hackett from Telluride specializes in emergency medicine and is also a climber. 
He says a lot of Colorado health professionals combine their passion with their profession. I mean, most of the doctors I know are backcountry skiers, mountaineers, ice climbers, rock climbers, cyclists. Still, there's a dearth of research in the broader field. A national study in 2014 found athletes in seven extreme sports suffered more than 40,000 head and neck injuries annually. Two and a half percent were labeled severe, meaning they involved the potential for lifelong disability or death. Skateboarding topped the list, followed by snowboarding, skiing, and motocross. Interest in extreme sports has been fueled by events like the X Games. GoPro cameras and YouTube have given athletes a way to show off daring exploits. They've also captured high-profile crashes, like the one at the Winter X Games in Aspen in 2013 that killed snowmobiler Caleb Moore. Athletic trainer Joe Sigan has worked at X Games. He likens injuries he's seen to those from a high-impact car accident. Each time they perform, death can happen. That's what makes the sports exciting for the spectators, but also dangerous for the athletes. As a physician, you you look at some of these activities and you th- it, it's ludicrous. That's Tom Hackett. He's an orthopedic surgeon in Vail. He's also a marathon swimmer who's crossed the English Channel. He knows he can't discourage his patients from pursuing their dreams. The risks are high. The margin of errors are narrow. But at the same time, that's part of the human spirit. Some doctors might cringe when their patient's passion involves climbing a rock face or barreling down a mountain. But participation in extreme sports is booming, so it's a balancing act more doctors and athletes may need to face together. I'm John Daly, CPR News. It's not just femurs and necks that extreme athletes risk injuring. It's their brains, too. After BMX rider Dave Mira committed suicide in February, it was discovered that he had a degenerative brain injury known as CTE. That's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's something you might sooner associate with former NFL players. But it appears to have moved the conversation on head trauma to extreme athletes and to weekend warriors. Dan Coppell recently wrote about this for Outside Magazine, and he joins us by phone. Dan, welcome to the program. Good morning. Extreme sports are incredibly popular, and uh, you spoke with a number of athletes for your story. It seemed that many were torn between being concerned about safety and just wanting to get out there and go. Uh, is, the awareness, well, is the awareness of head trauma evolving, do you think, within the extreme sports community? Uh, yeah, it's evolving. I, you know, I would, I, I mean, I'd say I would disagree that that most athletes are torn. In fact, I, I think most of them are understanding that head trauma is inevitable, that potential brain damage is is likely or or very possible, and and they want to keep doing what they do. Um, I, I mean, they might be a little torn, but they're 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 almost all leaning towards this, this is who I am. I'm, I'm not going to stop. Mm. And so I suppose the question for them is not stopping their sport, but how to do it in a safer way. Is that right? Yeah, how to do it in a safer way, although we so celebrate risk and danger. And, and, and I think a lot of the, these young men and women are, are hardwired for risk. So the question even moves beyond how to do it safely. It's what we do with a sport that's inherently unsafe. And, and how are we going to treat these athletes when 
you know, it, it comes home to roost eventually, as it will in many of them. Mm, a certain sense of inevitability, I suppose. What difference do helmets make? I mean, I just think to my own skiing, which is by no means extreme, but, you know, a decade ago, it was somewhat rare to see helmets on on the slopes, and now it's pretty common. Are, are, are those making a difference when it comes to head trauma? Well, it's pretty interesting. I'm sitting here right now on the floor of the annual bicycle industry trade show, and I can see within my sight at least five helmet manufacturers who are offering helmets that prevent um, minor traumatic brain injury or reduce that or claim to. And and yet, while these manufacturers are very adamant that their helmets work, um, the neurologists don't believe it. I, I mean, 201, every neurologist I spoke to said, helmets will not reduce or prevent concussions. They're meant to prevent skull fractures. Don't stop wearing them because you can die if you crash on your bike or skis without a helmet. But if you're hoping that uh, it'll help you not get a concussion, the medical consensus is that's not happening yet. Fascinating as well that there doesn't have to be direct impact for brain trauma to occur. Is that right? Sure. I mean, brain trauma occurs when the brain moves within the skull. So if you look at, um, you know, one of the most exciting bike events is called the Red Bull Rampage, where you have guys literally launching themselves off 50-foot cliffs and taking these landings. Um, their body is still accelerating and then decelerating very rapidly. All the bike suspension and helmets and skill in the world will not stop um, that, that hit from occurring. And so, you know, when you hear someone say, well, I've only been knocked out three times or I've, I've never fallen off my bike or I don't get concussions the way they do in football where they're butting heads against each other, well, well, that may that all, all may be true, but the truth is there's a lot of impact happening, and and the, and the more pro you get, the the crazier you get, uh, the more money you make, and the, the more important those impacts are to your career. Oh. What do you attribute the kind of arms race to the intensifying of risk? Is it the athletes themselves? Is it these sporting events? Is it the audience that watches them? Is it a combination of all of those things? Yeah, it's a combination, um, and and we we need to add technology, too. Um, You know, 20 years ago, it was not possible to do these giant jumps on a bike, for example, because you didn't have suspension. Hmm. Well, now bike suspension is really advanced, so so you can safely land, um, but but the suspension isn't absorbing all the shock. And and you see this in every sport, whether it's, you know, the, the... you know, the, the, the world record for the mile dropping down to below three minutes and 45 seconds, you know, or from, from four minutes when I was a kid to, to people being able to jump further, you know, do multiple flips. People get better at this stuff. Our bodies are, are stronger. We have better training techniques. We have better technology. And, you know, attention means that more people are going to try this stuff. And so perhaps the native geniuses are, are emerging um, in these sports in a way they hadn't before. Mm. And of course, with eyeballs watching these sports comes interest from corporations, for instance, that wish to underwrite, advertise all this. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also looking at the GoPro booth, Helmet Cam Company. I mean, they they have made their the go- fortune. Did you on say the Go? You said the GoPro booth. Is that right? Yeah, GoPro is a helmet cam, yeah, yeah. Um, and they, you know, they have made their fortune on getting the average person, you, me, to strap that cam on the helmet and and do gnarly stuff, um, uh, and, and millions of people can see it, and you can, and so everybody has access to the equipment and to the machinery of of, of commerce and public publicity, and I think that leads to increased risk.
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with uh, Dan Copel, who recently wrote for Outside Magazine about increasing awareness of head trauma in extreme sports. This is something that, of course, is largely focused on uh, the NFL, for instance. Uh, but this is shifting to other sports, including those on the slopes and on bikes. And I suppose the natural question here, Dan, is does what extreme athletes uh, engage in influence the weekend warriors, influence the more everyday athletes to take greater risks and to therefore expose themselves to greater head trauma? I mean, there is no question about that. I have, I have been a mountain biker, you know, since since the beginning of the sport. Um, I've taken these risks myself. I've gotten better even as I've gotten older and probably shouldn't be taking these risks. And when I'm out on my local trails in Los Angeles, I see people doing things on the same trails, you know, getting 20, 30 feet of air um, that was not even conceivable in, let's say, 1995. And these are, these are you know, dentists and doctors and lawyers and, and construction workers, just guys out on their bikes, mostly guys, you know, trying to get as much thrill as they can out of their one or two hours. Um, so it's definitely influenced the weekend warrior. All right. Some of them are dentists, but some of them, too, are kids. And I understand you're a father. So... You have to think about, I suppose, the uh, image that you send to them and that they're picking up from from the media. How do you talk about this with your own kids? <laughs> Luckily, my I mean, my my oldest boy is six. Okay. Uh, my youngest is, is two. Um, he my oldest boy is just learning to ride a bike. Um, and, and, you know, it's difficult, though. My, both my wife and I, I'm, a, I'm an avid mountain biker. She's a, you know, a skier, very high, highly skilled. We've been doing these things all our lives, um, taking, you know, measuring acceptable risk, although we never really thought about brain trauma. We thought more about breaking bones, things like that. Um, I want my kids to be healthy. I want them to explore the world. I want them to be curious. I want them to be risk takers in in the sort of positive sense of the world word. But I I don't want them to to be hurt, obviously. And and I don't have an answer to your question. You know, maybe I'm just deferring it because I won't need an answer for a few years. Uh, <laughs> I, I dread the day I have to answer that question. But it's a, it is a really difficult question, and I, I don't know that there is a real easy answer. I want to go back to this brain injury known as CTE, again, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, the science behind this seems to be evolving. And in your article, you focus on research that has identified the four stages of CTE, why is that important? Well, I think, you know, it, it, we know about CTE, and, and, and uh, you've probably mentioned that you can't detect it officially right now except in autopsy. Right. So anything, and, and, and yet it's, its symptoms, its devastating effects are obviously symptoms that happen, you know, while we're alive. And so it's very important to not just come up with a way to detect it, let's say, medically, physiologically, but also a, a way to sort of define its simplicity so that we can begin to potential treatments or at least experiment with treatments. You, you know, I mean, if someone comes in now and says, I bump my head a bunch of times and I'm having headaches, there's no sort of regimen. There's no sort of specific way. Health insurance companies don't, don't want to cover it. I mean, it has to be sort of classified, um, and, and that's what the stages do. They, they, they help us begin to understand what it's like to have this in life, and that allows us to approach treatment options. And for those who are unfamiliar with CTE, what are the symptoms as you go down that line? I mean, it, it can begin with 
you know, sort of obvious symptoms, um, headaches, things like that. But, but then it becomes sort, sort of more psychological, um, depression, um, irritability, anger, loss of focus, um, and, and moving on to full-fledged dementia and ultimately um, the uh, you know, loss of, of actual brain functionality. Anyone who's had a loved one um, who, who's suffered from Alzheimer's knows what CTE looks like. It just happens 30 or 40 years earlier. Um, but there's, there's, there's not a whole lot of difference in the way it presents except the age of the person. And, and ultimately, you know, CTE leads to a, a lot of suicide, not just because of depression, but, but because I think these young people who are especially physically capable and used to controlling their bodies see this sort of hopeless uh, slope that they're sliding down. And, and it's tragic. I want to preface this next question with an acknowledgement that some will hear it and say, you know, someone should have the right to do what they want to do and do to their body what they want to do. But do athletes need to be protected from themselves? Is this a sense of just saying, no, you can't do that, or at least you can't do that at a major televised event or something? Well, you know, I love these sports. I love these athletes. I'm I'm one of them in in a lot of ways. Um, I, I celebrate the risks they take. I've thrilled to them. But what saddens me is, is, is not do athletes need to sort of be policed, but sponsors need to be policed. You know, the, these athletes are not getting paid very much. Some of them get paid nothing. They don't even get an appearance. When they're hurt, often, you know, they have to resort to, to crowdfunding to pay for their physical therapy. At the same time, you see the sponsors um, you know, making major dollars from this, millions and millions of dollars. Um, so a pro athlete is taking a risk um, and understands the risk um, and, 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 you know, might get hurt. But what makes me sad is that when a pro athlete does get hurt in these sports, they are treated with less sort of care and respect than a baseball pro baseball player might be treated. Then the cameraman filming their stunt who's in a union would be treated. So it's not so much I think the athletes need to be policed. I think the sponsors need to step up and say, we're earning money off this risk. And so when the inevitable or, or the, the worst case scenario occurs, we are going to help out because it's our responsibility as the ones who profit. I mean, that, that's the model that, I, that I'd like to see, and that's not really happening. But very briefly, you, you can't hold a sponsor uh, responsible for, I don't know, a fall at the Tour de France or something. Well, I'm not really sure about that. I mean, it's true that the landscape of sports has changed from a sort of league and owner versus the player's level to a um, sort of promoter, sponsor, marketing, it, it, it's, it, you're right, it's squishier. It's hard to, I mean, it's hard to, if you, even if you could hold someone responsible, it's hard to say who. But in the end, the part of me that loves these athletes wants to say, someone is making a lot of money off this, and they should care for the people who are actually providing the thrills. Dan, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Dan Copel, a journalist who wrote about head trauma in extreme sports and in Weekend Warriors for Outside Magazine. There's a link to his piece at cprnews.org. Up next, a new book about murders, infidelities, and financial misdeeds from Colorado's past. This is Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The bad behavior of the rich and famous is irresistible to many. 
Look no further than shows like TMZ and Entertainment Tonight. Justin Bieber, arrested in Miami Beach for DUI. Catherine McPhee opens up about life after divorce and the infamous cheating scandal. This is a story that everybody is talking about. About a week ago, she announced that she was pregnant and we were so happy for Keisha. Now she says she was blindsided. Ryan Lochte speaks out after his headline-generating robbery scandal in Rio. People's fascination with the glitterati isn't new. As author and former Denver Post columnist Dick Crack can attest, he has sifted through Colorado's history to uncover the minor sins, big scandals, and even murders involving the state's rich and famous. And it was all splashed across newspaper headlines back in the day. His new book is called Rich People Behaving Badly. And Dick Crack joins my colleague Nathan Heffel. Dick, welcome to the program. Good morning. So as you heard in that little blurb there, we are still fascinated by uh, the glitterati. Uh, and in your book starts out in a really, starts out with a bang. Let's put it that way. Uh, the first sentence in your book, a pistol waving woman scorned is not to be trifled with. Uh, tell us the story of William Newton Byers and Haiti Sankum. Byers was an early Colorado pioneer. Yeah. Yes, uh, he was a very big deal in early Denver. Uh, he moved here in 1859. Uh, and he was part of the power elite in town. Uh, he thought he was going to be the first governor when the state mm-hmm. became a state. Uh, it was going fine until he met this divorcee, Hattie Sankum, uh, who had moved to Denver to open a business, and he had helped her, and their relationship kind of evolved. Uh, but then he realized it wasn't a good idea. And well, He uh, was he, married at the time. He was married at the time, and he had ambitions. Um, and so he essentially dumped her. Um, she didn't take kindly to that, uh, threatened him, uh, stalked him, um, and wrote a series of letters uh, in which she vowed to kill him uh, if she ever saw him on the street. And, and this wasn't just to somebody. I mean, he had started the Rocky Mountain News, uh, his friends. He brought the telegraph and the railroad to Denver along with the friends. Why, why do you think he fell in with Hattie? Well, uh, unfortunately, there's no known photograph of her. However, she was described by people at the time as being uh, beautiful and with wonderful colored hair. And, uh, and he, was, he was in his 40s, and she was much younger, and I think she kind of flattered him. Uh, and so he took up with her, um, and it all came unraveled when other newspapers in town began revealing what was going on. Uh, and uh, he just couldn't find a way to get out of it. And those letters that she wrote to him were picked up by newspapers, right? Yeah, particularly in Golden. There was a big rivalry between Denver and Golden at the time over which would become the state capital. And uh, ironically, uh, the guy who owned the Golden paper was a former employee of of his and a friend um, and began publishing the letters and then it just snowballed from there. And we had one of our producers read a passage from one of her letters, one that was PG enough to air on the radio. June 3rd, 1875. I have dedicated the rest of my life to your misery. And be assured, though I cease to speak of this, I shall hang about you like an incubus, and blasted shall you be. I simply warn you that you have a desperate enemy upon your track. You are only dear to me as an object of revenge. Oh, infernal villain, if I had you here, I'd plant my fingers in your eyes and tear them from their sockets. Oh, how I hate you. You shall not long exist. I'll blot out your existence before you shall ever know who dealt the blow to you. 
that's not light reading. No, that was that was <laughs> and, one of the milder ones. <laughs> so, how did Byer's wife react to these letters that are being you know plastered all over the newspapers in town? Um, well, apparently, when she first really became aware of it was when uh, Hattie followed uh, Byer's home one day on the streetcar, and uh, they got off the streetcar. She said, "Walking arm in arm," he said he was trying to get rid of her. When they got in front of his house, she pulled a gun on him. Uh, and his wife saw it from the front window of their house and came running out and rescued him. Um, there was one shot fired. Nobody's quite sure who did it. Um, but uh, they stayed married. So, you know. And what happened to Hattie? Did she stay in Denver? Uh, no. Hattie, uh, uh, as far as we know, uh, Hattie went back to Kansas where she had come from and was never heard from again. I want to talk about another person in your book, uh, The Good Wife. Stella Moore Smith. She was married to a successful attorney, but ended up shooting another man in 1917. Yes, she was a a socially prominent young woman who married this very famous lawyer whose father had been one of the trustees at the University of Denver. Um, And everything was fine until he caught her um, with the chauffeur. Uh, He divorced her. She married the chauffeur, who turned out to be a very terrible guy, uh, was abusive, a drunk, Spent her money, never worked. Um, And finally, uh, she got fed up. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a night where he came home drunk, insisted that she drink whiskey with him. Um, She didn't want to. Um, He pulled a gun on her and said, you will drink. And then he forced her to disrobe and crawl around on the floor and Mm -hmm. do something called the jelly wobble dance, which she didn't. I don't know what it was, and she didn't either. Um, And finally, she got fed up and pulled a gun and shot him. Uh, and then she went downstairs and told the maid, I've killed him. They went back upstairs. She thought she saw him twitch. She shot him again to make sure. Uh, and ultimately, she was acquitted. Uh, uh, it was justifiable, said the jury. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Dick Crack, former Denver Post a columnist and author. His new book is called Rich People Behaving Badly. And the morning of the murder, the Denver Post headline said, quote, I shot to save the honor of my child. I'm satisfied, declares Stella Smith. And that, of course, whipped the city into a frenzy. And uh, the the trial uh, was kind of kept from the public eye because there were such uh, scandalous uh, descriptions of the abuse by her, her second husband. Well, you got to remember that there was no Internet. There were no, you know, TMZ didn't exist. So the newspapers were the were the major source. Um What intrigued me about her story was um, that she was a perfect example of an abused wife. Hmm. Um, She thought she could change him. She was scared that he was going to hurt her or her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, or even her ex-husband. And so she put up with a lot of stuff until finally uh, she couldn't do it anymore. Um, But, yeah, it was a huge deal. I mean, in those days, that was the news source. And there are quite a few women scorned in your book with monikers like the good wife, the flower-faced vampire, the iron lady, and the newspaper reports seem pretty one-sided. Did that surprise you? Was it just the sign of the times? Well, first of all, most of the reporters were men. Um, Second of all, these stories involved men who simply couldn't say no, um, you know, and then found themselves in a spot uh, that they couldn't get out of. Um, but yeah, I think I, I noticed the same thing after I'd written it, you know, I thought, man, these all involved wronged women. Um, and, uh, I think again, going back to those times, um, that was pretty typical thinking. 
And your stories are not all murder and failed marriages. There are even a few con men like Fred Ward. He was called the perfect salesman in the 1950s. Why, why was that? Um, he was an interesting case. Um, he was a very big guy, well over six feet, close to 300 pounds. Had a portly a, guy. A portly guy and a personality to match. Uh, he was a good talker. Um, he he was able to sell cars like a madman. And at one point, uh, he had the largest Hudson dealership in the west of Mississippi. Hudson today doesn't mean much, but back then they were bigger than Chevy and Ford in some yeah. parts. Uh, the problem was... Uh, he was taking loans out against his stock of cars uh, when, in fact, he didn't have those cars or he sold the same car two or three times. And how did he do that? <laughs> well, he'd make up these VIN numbers and um, eventually it all caught up with him and the banks wanted their money back. Uh, and uh, uh, he didn't have the money and he borrowed money from, from friends and, and famous people. And um, so finally he got convicted of fraud and went to uh, Canyon City uh, for five years. But happened? I have to give the guy credit. When he was in prison, he had this idea of producing a small plastic ball that you could put soap and water in and women could shake the ball to clean their nylons. Um, he he claimed he was going to sell a million of them and pay back all the money he owed. He never did. And then he, he came up with a, a company. His wife was president. Um, to produce uh, wooden furniture for children. That didn't do any good either. And then he died in Texas of a heart attack in his late 50s. Why write this book? Why go after the, the, the scandalous people, the, 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 the lovers scorned, things like that? Well, first of all, it, it, it's pretty fun stuff. I mean, I, when I was in school, um, you know, history consisted of memorizing dates and names and I've always been more interested in the sidelights of history. Um, the book I did on the murder at the Brown Palace uh, was that same kind of a thing. You know, it involved well-to-do people who just couldn't behave themselves. Um, so really, but also I think there's a moral element to it. Um, one of the things I discovered was that that people today are no different than they were 175 years ago. It's the same stuff, shooting each other, running off with their neighbor, cheating other people. The technology has changed. The technology has changed and our awareness of it has changed because they're, you know, cable programs and, and national news and all that stuff. Um, but it's essentially the same. I want to talk about one more person before we wrap up here. There was a pastor named Charles E. Blair. His story takes much uh, takes place much later in the 1980s. And you write, if Pastor Blair had paid more attention to the good book instead of cooking the books, his life might have turned out very differently. Why? Well, in his day, he, he was one of the first televangelists, and he was huge in Denver. His, his church uh, there on University Boulevard um, drew about 6,000 people every Sunday. Uh, he was a guy with big dreams. He'd grown up poor in Oklahoma. Uh, he founded these three foundations uh, for various things, one of which was an old people's home. Uh, and he collected money from these people uh, and never built the home. And so even – and he was convicted on this. And, and But even after that, the, the temple faithfully stood by Blair. The, his church did 7,000 of them even came to a tribute for him and his wife at Red Rocks Amphitheater. And paid money to get in because the money allegedly was going to go to uh, pay off the debt uh, that he had run up. Um, 
And and I got to say, to his credit, he did pay back a large part of it, but partly because the cases were in court for so long that most of the complainants died before the settlements. And briefly, are you wrapped up with all the scandalists or are you going to go into another book and maybe a little bit deeper on this? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I, maybe there'll be a second volume if I can find enough. Uh, Dick Reck, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That is author and former Denver Post columnist Dick Crack speaking with Nathan Heffel. You can read an excerpt of Rich People Behaving Badly at CPRnews.org. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can be in touch with us via Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook. We are CPR News. Rachel Estabrook is our executive editor. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for being with us.